denial of death. They can't accept the inevitability of their death. They don't want to think about death. They try to put it out of their mind. Some people refuse to go to funerals because they're confronted with the reality of death and the fact that, that all people are going to some point die. One definition of denial is that of knowing the truth, seeing the truth, but believing the lies. Bill Watterson, creator of Calvin and Hobbes, the comic strip, has a comic in which he writes, I'm, it's not denial, I'm just selective about the reality I accept. Those who are not seeking the truth are never going to be convinced by the truth. We under, must understand that aspect of denial. There is an old Navajo proverb that says, you can't wake a person that's pretending to be asleep. The chief priests were living in denial. They were pretending that they did not have enough information to believe in the person of Lord Jesus Christ, in his death and resurrection. But they were living in denial of what they knew to be true and what they had seen, but instead chose to believe the lies. Two weeks ago, we were in this same book of Matthew, in the same context, looking at the death of the Lord Jesus, and noted that there were three signs that were given in association with his death and resurrection. The first was the earthquake. And I said that was given for those that were immediately around the cross. And uh, the centurion actually placed his faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. The uh, second sign was the resurrection of some dead saints that uh, rose at the same time that the Lord Jesus rose. And uh, they went and appeared in Jerusalem. And the third sign I mentioned was assigned to the priests. And that was that in the most holy place, there is a curtain, 60 feet uh, high, 30 feet wide, that separated the holy place from the most holy place. Only the high priest could go into the holy place once a year. Well, it just so happens, not coincidentally, that the hour in which the Lord Jesus died was also the hour of the evening sacrifice, which meant that when that veil in the temple was rent, there was some priest in the holy place. There was some priest standing there when that curtain was torn from top to bottom. Now, one can only imagine the uproar that that would have created. Uh, how that, that priest must have been astonished and gone and talked to the other priests about this miracle that had just happened in this <clears throat> rending of the uh, curtain between the holy place and the most holy place. But these priests did not believe. They continued in their opposition against the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, we want to be looking at the continued unbelief of the Pharisees and chief priests, the fact that it was willful denial of what they knew to be true. Okay, so the willful denial, the continued unbelief of the scribes and Pharisees, rejecting what they knew to be true. <coughs> so my first point is that denial necessitates knowing the truth. Denial 
uh, necessitates knowing the truth. The chief priests knew the truth about Jesus. They knew the details. They knew his claims. I don't have time this morning to rehearse for you the whole book of Matthew and all the things that the priests and Pharisees knew about Jesus. But I'm going to focus this morning on the resurrection. And the Jewish leaders were aware of Jesus' teaching concerning the resurrection. Notice, starting in our text in Matthew 27, verse 62. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the, this would have been the day after the crucifixion, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. They remembered Jesus' teaching concerning his resurrection. They understood that Jesus had taught that after three days that he was going to rise again from the dead. What is odd about this passage is that the chief priests, oddly enough, remembered what the apostles had seemed to have forgotten. Namely, that Jesus would rise after the third day. The apostles are, at this point, bewildered and saddened, and not at all anticipating the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But here are these scribes and Pharisees who know the law and know Christ's teaching and come and said, that imposter, they didn't accept Jesus for who he was, but they said, that imposter said that he was going to rise again after three days. They understood that Jesus was saying that he was going to come forth bodily from the tomb. They knew he wasn't talking about a spiritual resurrection, which so many liberal Christians want to talk about today. No, they understood that Jesus meant that he was going to come bodily out of the tomb. So the chief priests wanted to be sure that Jesus' body would remain in the tomb. Their fear was that the disciples would steal the body and say that Jesus had risen from the dead when in fact he had not. Notice verse 64. Therefore, because Jesus had said that he would rise after the three days, therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. If they're able to pull that off, say the scribes, Pharisees, and chief priests, if the disciples are able to steal the body and be able to say that this is proof, the empty tomb, that Jesus rose from the dead, then we're really in hot water. So we want this tomb to be secured so that the body cannot be stolen. The chief priests wanted the tomb secured so the disciples could not steal the body. And the key word is the word secured. It appears three times in our text, starting with verse 64. 
Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest the disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead and the last fraud be worse than the first. Verse 65, Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure. Okay, so it's all about securing this tomb so that it can't be touched and that body remains in the tomb. And it was secured in two ways in verse 66. Make the, so they made the tomb secure. How? First, by sealing the stone. By sealing the stone. That is, they set a seal upon it. It was a seal of the Roman government that the tomb was not to be tampered with. This was an ancient custom. And it goes all the way back even to ancient Babylon. You can read in Daniel chapter 6, verse 7, these words. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. This is when Daniel was placed in the lion's den. A stone was brought, laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. So this seal would be a waxed seal that would bear the imprint of the royal decree that that tomb was not to be touched. And it would be made of wax so that if it were... Uh, jostled, or if it were in any way moved, that the wax would break and you'd see that the seal was broken. But the point of the seal was that this tomb was not to be touched by the authority of the Roman government. And if anybody messes with this tomb, you've messed with Rome. You're going to be held accountable. Okay? You are going to be charged. It is illegal for anyone to mess with the tomb that Jesus was placed in. So they had a seal. The second way in which the tomb was secured was by the guards that were given. Notice verse 66. So they went and made the tomb secure, first by sealing the stone, and then secondly by setting a guard. So now there are Roman soldiers standing around this tomb with the sole charge. Their only mission, their only purpose was to keep that body from being stolen. To guard it against any deception that the disciples might seek to perpetrate by stealing the body. However, Jesus did, in fact, rise from the dead, which is given to us in Matthew 28, 1 and following. Starting with verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat upon it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen 
as he said, come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly and from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see thee. There is much in this passage. I'm going to skip over all of it. Just note the fact that Jesus rose. Back to my main point. While the women went to the disciples to report what, Jesus, uh, what had taken place, some of the guardsmen went to the chief priests to report what had taken place. Notice verse 11. While they were going, that is, everybody leaves the tomb. While the women were going to the disciples, the guards, some of them, were going back to the chief priests. Verse 11. Behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. So the first aspect of denial is knowing the truth. They knew what Jesus said about the resurrection. The second aspect of denial is seeing the truth. Seeing the truth. Seeing the evidence. Seeing the proof. The substantiation for what is claimed. The chief priests and Pharisees are going to be confronted with the truth of Jesus' resurrection. The chief priests who knew Jesus' teaching now heard from a very credible source, namely the guards themselves, that Jesus had risen from the, from the dead. Notice verse 11. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went to the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. They relate the whole story. They tell them about the angel. They tell them about the women. They, they tell them about what the angel said. They tell them that the tomb is empty. They tell them that Jesus rose from the dead. I submit to you that the guards were the most credible witness to the resurrection that we have. You know, uh, we have the women's account, but they're disciples. They're followers of Jesus. We have the apostles' account. But they are followers of Jesus. Now, the apostles also are going to die for their faith, and it's hard to imagine why they'd want to perpetuate a lie to the point where they are giving their life for that lie. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, they are followers of Jesus. But what about these guards? What about these guards? They have no agenda. They have no reason to say that Jesus rose from the dead when he didn't. They're pretty credible. The third element of denial is that refusing to accept what one knows to be true and rather believes the lie. So notice what the chief priest's response is in verse 12. And when they had assembled with the elders... And taken counsel. The chief priests now are going to call the elders, the, the leaders of the nation of Israel. 
And they are going to share with the leaders of the nation of Israel the guard's account of what happened. And they're going to sit around and discuss what they should do about this. How they're going to react to this story that the uh, guards have brought to them that Jesus rose from the dead. What are they going to do about this testimony? What are they going to do in light of this information? Well, they decided to pay the soldiers to lie and say that the body was stolen. The very thing that the guards were to guard against. The very reason why they were placed there. Notice verses 12 and 13. And when they assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Then they assured the soldiers that they would protect the soldiers against any prosecution. Verse 14. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. Well, what kind of trouble were they going to get into? Remember, the tomb is sealed. There is a decree by the Roman authorities that if anybody messes with this tomb, you are going to be accountable to the Roman government. They have been placed there to make sure that nobody messes with the tomb. But now the seal is broken. The tomb is empty. <laughs> Whose head is going to roll? Who's going to be held accountable? It's these guards. And that is why the Jewish leaders say, if this gets back to the governor, we'll, we'll keep you out of trouble. Don't worry about it. You just tell the lie. You take the money, and we got your back. And so the guards do as they were told. Verse 15. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this explanation of the empty tomb being a result of the disciples stealing the body continues to the time of the writing of the book of Matthew. And the story continues on even to our day. In verse 15, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. To this day refers to the time of the writing of Matthew. However, that story not, didn't stop at the end of the writing of Matthew. That story comes down to us today. There are many liberal scholars that accept the idea that the disciples stole the body of the Lord Jesus. So that's the background, actually, for our consideration this morning on lessons on living in denial. Lessons on the denial of historical realities. What I want to convey to you this morning is that I firmly believe that the fiction or lies 
about Jesus are in fact harder to believe than the truth about Jesus. Believe it or not, the Bible makes sense. And the lies don't. Uh, I say that having studied the Bible all my life. And I have put every ounce of faith into what the Word of God says. But not blindly. I read, I study, I think, and I tell you, it's harder to believe the lies than is the truth. The truth makes far more sense than the lies. Let me unpack that for you just a little bit. One has to live in absolute denial to accept that the body of Jesus was stolen as an explanation to the, refute, the resurrection of Jesus. Number one, the story that Jesus' body was stolen affirms the reality of the empty tomb. Okay? Hang with me. If the tomb were not empty, there would be no story of the body being stolen. There'd be no need for the story. If the disciples claimed that Jesus had risen from the dead and he had not, people would simply have gone to the tomb and pointed to the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was the absence of the body that necessitated the lie. If the tomb was not empty, and if the story about the guards was made up, the people could have easily understood in Jesus' day that that was a lie. Now we can't today, 2,000 years later, go back to this tomb. But certainly, in the time of the writing of Matthew, they did. And they could. The point was, the tomb was empty. Scholars have recognized that truth. And so in our day, it is becoming much more popular to say that the story of the guards is made up. The guards didn't exist. That they were the product of the church later on down through the years. Now, first of all, that doesn't work historically. Uh, that, that doesn't... Uh, right, here it is, right, in the Matthew, okay? So this didn't come 300 years later. Again, it's harder to believe the lies, okay? It's right here, okay? Not 300 years later, immediately after the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. But even ignoring that, even ignoring that, too many people would have known that there was no guard present at the tomb. But the story itself makes no sense. For look at verse 62 with me. Truly, uh, verse 62, I need to uh. <clears throat> the next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was alive, after three days I will rise. 
That makes no sense if the story is made up. Okay, if you're going to make up a story about guards that are going to protect the tomb, you're not going to have them show up the second day. You want those guards there from the very start. You want those guards around from the time that Jesus is off the cross and is carried to that tomb, placed in it, and guarded over it for three days. Okay? If you're going to make up the story, you're not going to have the guards show up the second day because that's going to lend question to the, to the whole aspect. Well, what... How do we know the body wasn't stolen the first night if the guard didn't show up to the second day? Now, that's not actually a problem. For the answer to that is because the tomb was sealed. So that when they put that seal on that tomb, the body was there. So they know it wasn't stolen. Okay? But I'm just saying to you, if you were going to make up the story, you would have changed a lot of these details to make them a lot more forceful than what they are. And again, when, when you look at all of the Bible in its full context of how all of these narratives interweave, I, I, I'm just amazed. Uh, to me, it just speaks volumes about how the Bible really is the Word of God and comes from Him because it's too ingenious for people to have made up. Why did the women go to the tomb? To anoint the body of Jesus, right? To anoint the body of Jesus. Now we can go to a parallel passage, and what are they concerned about when they go to anoint the body of Jesus? Who's going to roll the stone away? Guess what they're not concerned about? The guards aren't going to let us in that tomb. It's sealed. It's useless for us to go to the tomb. For there's a guard there, and there is no way that we're going to be able to anoint this body. But they don't know that there's a guard there, because the guard doesn't come to the second day. And they leave the first night. They don't realize there's going to be a problem. They don't realize that the tomb is sealed. For when they left it, there was no guard and there was no seal. You know, as, as you read the details of Scripture, the more detailed you get, the more you realize how true it is. And the more you look at the substitutive suggestions, the more ridiculous they become. You know the old story, the devil's in the details. When you carefully, minutely begin to study the scriptures, you just find them authenticating themselves time and time and time again. Moving on. Is the lie that the guards told it all credible? Is it believable? 
Why did the soldiers not get in trouble? Why is there no record of their being prosecuted? You have to ask the question, okay? Why weren't they held accountable for the fact that on their watch, the body was stolen and the very purpose for their being there was to keep the body from being stolen. So why weren't they put to death? Well, because the Jewish leaders went to bat for the, for the guards. Why would the Jewish leaders who went to Pilate and said, we are concerned that this body is going to be stolen. And Pilate says, okay, you can make it as secure as you can. I'll put a seal on it. I'll give you the soldiers. And now these soldiers supposedly fall asleep, professional soldiers, neglecting their duty, falling asleep, and the body is stolen, and the Pharisees say, oh, that's okay. No ill will. <laughs> that stuff like that happens. People fall asleep. You know, uh, all is forgiven. All is well. Uh, oh, oh, Pilate, please, please treat these men with kindness. Uh, be merciful to them. For uh, what's the big deal? The body's gone. Oh, whoa. They would have had no reason to go to bat for the Roman soldiers. It doesn't make sense historically. It doesn't add up. It's not logical. It's harder to believe the lie than it is to believe the truth. Lessons. Lessons. The belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a credible belief. One doesn't have to be an idiot or a simpleton to believe in the resurrection. The history is on our side. The resurrection of Jesus Christ has never been disproved. There's never been a body produced. Never been a body produced. The tomb was empty. No one has ever, ever presented a body that was supposed to be Jesus's. Why not? Why weren't the disciples prosecuted for stealing the body? You know, the, the uh, charges against Jesus were trumped up. They hired witnesses to lie about what Jesus said just a few days earlier. So why didn't they decide to have a trial and prosecute the disciples for stealing the body and get witnesses to come and uh, corroborate the false story? They didn't want this examined. They didn't want this to be looked at. They didn't want this to be critiqued. There is no prosecution, historically, of the disciples for stealing the body when there is a host 
of historical material that tells us that that story was commonplace. Why did everybody just decide to let it go? When the disciples are going to, all of them, be martyred ultimately for their faith and the things that they say about the resurrection, but nothing about stealing the body. It makes no sense. The lie that the guards told has absolutely no credibility. They don't claim that they were overpowered. They claim that they fell asleep. What we have in this passage is willful denial of the facts. People just burying their heads as to what took place. And I'm thinking especially of the chief priests and these soldiers. But let me tell you, people, that there are some important lessons for us to learn. First, lessons about witnessing. The uh, passage that I gave to you this morning as call to worship is one of, I think, the most important verses to understand in the word of God. That is, Luke 16, 31. Jesus said, uh, this is in an interaction that is seen in the heavenly realm uh, between uh, the rich man and Lazarus. And uh, the rich man wants somebody to go back and tell his family that... uh, The gospel is true. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. If people aren't going to believe the word of God, the Bible says they're not going to be convinced even if somebody rises from the dead. Here is a prime example. If people aren't going to believe what Jesus said, They're not going to believe even if he rises from the dead. And he did. And they knew he did. They had the credible witness of these guards that they had placed there. And they chose not to believe it. And they chose to perpetuate a lie. To dissuade other people from believing it. They didn't even want them to hear the truth. They weren't just neutral. They were on the offensive. They wanted this story to be squelched. And that's many times the way it is when people reject the truth of the scriptures. Not only are they opposed to the scriptures, but many times they become on the offensive to make sure that other people don't believe the word of God. And believe me, the Bible is under great attack today. And even as Christians, Christians are beginning to wane in their confidence in the scriptures. All I can say to you people is that the more you read the scriptures, the more confident you will become of their truthfulness. In fact, if you withhold the scriptures from someone, you withhold from them the very instrument that God is going to use to bring them to faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. 
It is the word of God that brings faith. And not just miraculously, although there's a miraculous element to, and a spiritual element to be sure, but because the Bible is credible. It makes sense. I can't stress that enough. The Bible makes sense. You put it all together and it fits. And in an awesome way. You just stand back in awe of how these details come together. As I say, I've been studying the Bible all my life and and I'm just never amazed. The more I read it, it doesn't create doubts, it creates certainty. The more I read it, the more I'm willing to stand up and defend this before anyone. The Bible is true. And it takes more faith to deny it than it does to accept it. But the battle is not a battle of intelligence or scholarship or ingenuity. It is a spiritual battle. And so we have to pray for the Spirit of God to open the hearts and minds of individuals to understand his truth. We need to understand that we believe in a presuppositional apologetics, which simply means that while evidence is valuable, no one is going to be argued into the kingdom of God. It isn't going to be evidence that ultimately is going to make the determination. There is where the denial becomes. Because I don't care what what proof you come up with, people won't accept it. If their presupposition is that simply can't happen, didn't happen, and they won't accept it. And most people won't sit and look at the facts as I tried to lay them out this morning. Try to have that discussion with the person who simply denies it. After five minutes, they're bored. Okay, Because they don't really care. They're not looking for truth. They're looking to oppose. The best way that we have to witness to the truth of God is to simply proclaim the word of God. Tell people what the Bible says. And believe that the Bible is authoritative, it is powerful, it is quick, living, sharper than a two-edged sword. And there are people that are going to come to faith when they hear the gospel message. The centurion, when he stood at that foot of the cross, said, Behold, this truly is the Son of God. And everyone around him witnessed the same things. It isn't just the facts. It's the moving and working of the Spirit of God. So let us go forth and let us proclaim, once again, the truth of God's Word. Let us simply tell people what the Bible says. And never, ever be apologetic or fearful or feel like you are half-brained because you place your faith and trust in the inspired, 
inerrant, infallible Word of God. We have been entrusted with this great Word that comes from Him. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for the Lord Jesus. We thank You that He died on the cross to bear the guilt and punishment and consequences of our sinfulness to reconcile us to you and to one another. We are thankful that Jesus was indeed placed in a tomb, that he rose on the third day. He ascended into heaven. He sits at your right hand and one day is coming again. We proudly, gladly proclaim your coming. And I pray, O oh God, that everyone here would place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that they would not live in denial of the reality of death, that one day each and every one of us is going to die, and we are going to stand before you. We are going to be in your presence. And we will have to give an account for what we have believed and how we have lived. Oh, Lord, help us not to live in denial. Help us to stop and think. And Lord, help us to think about what it is that we believe. And particularly, what do we believe about Jesus and his resurrection? And I pray, oh God, that everyone here would be having their faith and trust in Jesus, who came forth from that grave, conquered sin and death, rose to be seated at your right hand, is coming again in power and great glory. And help us, oh God, to take that message to others. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Pastor, for faithfully expounding that powerful portion of Scripture. Sure, many times we've read the res resurrection story, sort of glossed over the last part there, but uh, thank you for explaining it so well. God's word is truth. It will never change, and it will never disappear. Let's open our hymnal to number 168 as we close and rejoice in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the day of resurrection. Number 168. Shall we stand together as we sing? Mm -hmm. 